I'm Zoe Bisbee, and this is The Full Bloom Project, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. I'm thrilled to be back with a brand new episode after a few weeks off and to share an exciting update. The Full Bloom Project is now offering virtual workshops to parents, school professionals, and students between the ages of 12 and 18. This podcast will continue to be here as a free resource for all who listen. But our workshops really tie everything together into a well-organized learning framework. A framework that will help you harness the way you think and talk about bodies, food, movement, health, and social justice to ensure we all plant protective, body-positive seeds in the next generation. After all, our young people deserve to grow up in a world that affirms every part of them, where size and neurodiversity is celebrated, physical differences are embraced, and culture and heritage is valued, a world that does not exist yet. But as we walk through the fundamentals of body-positive nurturing, you'll gain new language, new paradigms, and new skills to try out with the young people in your life right away. To learn more about booking a workshop, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash speaking or email us at info at fullbloomproject.com. Okay, on to today's show. Have you ever wondered how bias works or how we can actually start to change minds and how we can make that change last? I think about this a lot, especially when I start to feel a little hopeless about the gargantuan task, or so it feels, of trying to change people's minds. And who am I kidding? It's me too. We all live with implicit bias or unconscious bias. And Just acknowledging that fact is a really important first step, but it doesn't get the whole job done. Just becoming aware, for example, that anti-fat bias is a thing, it, it just isn't enough. But thankfully, my guest today, Jessica Nordell, wrote a book that offers us some really practical, science-based, essential guidance to help us all move towards what she calls the end of bias. Here is my illuminating conversation with Jessica Nordell. Let's just start with how does bias work? Give us the cliff notes. So the idea of unconscious bias really came about kind of to make sense of a paradox. And the paradox was this. If you ask people if they believe that people should be treated fairly and people should be treated well and people shouldn't face discrimination regardless of their background or identity, most folks you ask that question to will say, yeah, of course, like people shouldn't be discriminated against and I want to treat people fairly and I believe in egalitarianism. But if you observe those same people behaving, and you observe them unobtrusively or you study the way they react to different people, you see something very different. And what you see is that people do discriminate against one another on the basis of 
so many different social identities. I mean, you name it. There's we could do a whole conversation just about all the different types of bias that there are, including weight bias, age bias, race, gender, ethnicity, you know, religion, disability, it goes on. And so the idea of unconscious bias really came about to try to make sense of this, this discrepancy. Why are people saying one thing, but then acting another way? Um, and so the idea of unconscious bias is that we absorb all of these ideas and stereotypes and associations from the culture. And then when we encounter someone who we recognize as belonging to a category that is salient in our culture, then all of those absorbed stereotypes start to influence the way that we interact. And it can influence our behavior, our feelings, our judgments so automatically that we don't even recognize it those reactions can conflict with who we believe ourselves to be and who we want to be. I mean, and that happens so much in my practice. I'm thinking about clients that are sometimes just appalled when they have to admit that they have so much fat phobia or they have so much hatred of fatness. And that doesn't seem to match with their values when they think it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, I'm kind of right now speaking about maybe an adult patient who's engaged in some kind of disordered eating behavior or is really struggling with body satisfaction, right? And they're embarrassed to even admit that they have this part of them that is just hateful because they can't reconcile that with the fact that they don't believe anybody's deserving of hate. And if you can share a little more about what is happening cognitively there, because right, something does not add up. And yet I think a lot of people listening are going to know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, I really um, resonate with that as well. I mean, one of the, one of the humbling experiences I had when working on this project was reconciling the fact that I am a raging feminist with the fact that I found myself reacting in biased ways toward other women, you know, without realizing it, having stereotypes about women influence the judgments and the assumptions and the expectations I was making about women, whether it was their competence or their, you know, appropriateness for a role or whatever it was, you know, that reaction really conflicts with my values and my beliefs. And so I, I empathize with anyone listening who experiences that, that dissonance. I think it's real. And I think it's kind of underappreciated how much those of us who are members of groups that have been stigmatized internalize that stigma as well. It's not just everyone else. It's, you know, it's inside as well. So to your question about what's happening cognitively is really that we, we use categories in order to make sense of the world. And the categories that we learn are the ones that are salient in our culture. They're useful in our culture or they're restated over and over in our culture. They, they have some kind of meaning. And along with those categories come associations that we have with those categories. And so all of that gets stored in our memory. And then when we encounter someone who fits one of those categories, that information stored in memory comes to the forefront of our mind and starts to influence our reactions. So the cue, it, like you're saying, it's unconscious. The, it's like the, the stimuli is just seeing a person. Yeah. The cue is really the category. Like we categorize things like age and sex and race within microseconds or milliseconds. We categorize these things really quickly. And as soon as we categorize, 
the other ideas come into our mind as well without our, you know, without us wanting them necessarily there. Right. And it's automatic, like you're saying. I mean, I'm thinking about a conversation I had around this big question, like, how do, how do we deal with this? It's, it's a big, it's a big problem. And the uh, researcher I was speaking to was talking about how real social conformity is too. Like, I think when you're saying like salient in our culture, that's what I'm thinking about and how really, unless the norms change where it's more acceptable, let's say in, in our case of, of appearance to be fat, it's harder because that pull to social conformity is so real and so strong. I'm curious, just your thoughts or what you've encountered around the sort of phenomena of social conformity or how that kind of mitigates all this here. Oh, it's huge. There are a lot of different reasons that we behave in a particular way at a particular time, but social norms are one of the huge factors that play into how we behave. And I would say that weight bias, maybe along with age bias, are unfortunately still almost socially acceptable forms of bias. Like we hear people make jokes about people's weight or about people's age in a way there isn't a strong social norm against it yet. So yeah, and you know, we take our cue about how to behave from other people's behaviors. So if we start to, if we see that that is an acceptable, you know, socially acceptable way to behave, then that, yeah, that has a huge influence on, on how we behave as well. Well, you mentioned examples of weight bias in the research. I feel like we've covered that to some extent, but given your lens, I wonder if you want to speak a little bit to us about weight bias in the research, like what you came across in writing this book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. We Whether we're talking about weight bias or gender bias or racial bias, we see these biases take on kind of different flavors depending on the area that we're looking at. So in terms of weight bias, if you look at healthcare, and this is something I'm sure you've talked about in your program, you see doctors spending less time and building less rapport with heavier patients. Anecdotally, I mean, I've talked to many people who said that they, you know, would go to the doctor and for a, a medical complaint that had nothing to do with their weight, and then the doctor would focus on the weight, even if it was like, you know, a broken arm. You know, you see it in healthcare. You see teachers doubting the academic ability of heavier students more than slender students. And of course, you see discrimination at work, you know, against people with higher BMI. And so you see it really in healthcare. You see it in education. You see it in the workplace. It's it's not as broadly and deeply studied as racial bias or gender bias, but the research that's there makes a, a very persuasive case that it's a real and pervasive phenomenon. Why I find these opportunities that I have to speak with certainly other grown-ups, but really the next generation is we need them to be aware of this because it is their cause. Like the next generation has to make this as visible. And I appreciate what you said about there isn't enough not resistance, but how did you put it? Like with racial bias, there's more what? More to challenge it in the culture, whereas with weight bias and age bias, there's less. How did you put it? I liked the way you said it. Maybe I said, you know, I think in some ways age bias and weight bias are still in some ways socially acceptable forms of bias. There's less of a sort of like automatic recoiling that people have from that kind of bias. 
So that recoiling, those listening won't have seen that you went like this, right? Like you sort of physically recoiled. And and that's a real experience. That is not like you're just thinking something. Your body's responding. And I think with fatness, for example, fat bodies or the idea of fatness, that's a common experience that people have, this sort of recoiling at the thought of it, at the fear of it, at the sight of it. So I think that's evidence that bias exists, right? So then the, the big moment, of course, is like, how do we change minds? And I think that you tackle this really impressively in your book, because if someone can get, yes, I believe you, I feel it. I know it's there. And yet, what do I do? What do you say? You know, like, how do we get that conversation going, whether it's with, you know, a parent, a teacher, um, or even a teen, a kid, you know, like if we can name it, we can agree it exists. I know what it feels like. What do I do? How do I change my mind? I mean, (laughs) this is a huge question. Um, So there are a lot of different approaches. I would say there isn't like one single silver bullet approach that we can all start doing tomorrow and be done with this problem. I think it's a, you know, requires a multifactorial approach. But in terms of what, you know, an individual can do, there is good research that suggests that if we increase our own awareness of our own capacity to have these biases and we increase our motivation to combat them by learning about the impact and learning about all the negative consequences, and we start to develop some strategies uh, to interrupt our own thinking, whether it's practicing mindfulness so that we can practice the ability to see what's going on in our own mind or building in some other kinds of strategies I can talk about in a minute. If we have awareness and motivation and strategies, that can start to shift behavior. And so there are a lot of different strategies that we can talk about. Some include replacing stereotypic imagery with counter-stereotypic imagery. So this has been tried in terms of race. I don't know about examples uh, where this has been used in, uh, in terms of weight bias, but researchers have looked at using images of extremely prominent African-Americans and posting those images sort of prominently in their office or in their you know workplace. So they're constantly looking at images that counteract negative stereotypes about African-Americans. That's one strategy, developing kind of counter-stereotypic imagery. You know, another, another strategy that I, that I write about a lot in the book that I think is really powerful is developing meaningful relationships across difference. Because we have this kind of natural kind of tendency toward believing that our own group is very various and groups that we don't belong to are homogenous. So if we develop meaningful relationships across those differences, that starts to break down any stereotype, negative stereotype, positive stereotype, and allows us to interact with one another in a more kind of life-affirming way. I want as many strategies as you'll give us, but I want to ask a question about that because that feels really intuitive and just essential. I think trying to build meaningful relationships and ultimately or ideally community with people that are different. And I often find that 
myself included, that sometimes this is just functionally hard. I'm curious if you've come across any (laughs) creative ideas or any stories of how folks have like get that and say, yes, I agree. I need more relationships with different looking people, different identities, but I don't know where to begin. I live in like a super white world or a super thin world or a super privileged world. Where does one go? It's a great question. I mean, we like structurally in our society, we really encourage people to self-segregate. What I think is that there are a lot of opportunities to begin to develop connections across difference if we start paying attention to them. I think throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our, you know, work day, there are there may be many more kind of moments and openings in order to forge a connection. And if we have that as our goal and start to look for and recognize those opportunities, then I, I think we'll actually see a lot more of them. But I think the tendency that we all have to fight against is homophily, which means literally love of the same. We are drawn to people who remind us of ourselves. It feels comfortable. We don't have to, you know, feel the discomfort of trying to learn about a different culture or a different kind of way of being. And so I think sometimes we do, we do that subconsciously too. We don't even realize how much we are putting ourselves in situations where we're not going to find different people. That's a fair point. As you were speaking, I thought, well, that might be bias talking too. Like if our bias is sort of these lenses that we wear that we're not even aware we put on glasses, right? Then I think to your point, you're walking through the world on some level, not seeing potential for connection because maybe your unconscious bias, your implicit bias is actually cueing you to cross the street, so to speak. And so I think that's a fair thing for us all to think about that actually, if we're doing this sort of unlearning bias with the awareness right? What was, you did, you got a little three-pointer, like awareness. Right. right. Awareness, motivation, motivation, and strategies. And strategy. Increasing the awareness. I don't know. I mean, the world might look actually very different socially to you. Absolutely. And I think it's also, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, choices that we make that maybe we don't think of as playing a role in in creating the kind of our social world, whether it's what neighborhood do we choose to live in? What school do we choose to send our kids to? What community organizations do we belong to? What faith communities are we part of? I mean, all of these are often choices that we can make. And if we want to be deliberate about creating relationships across difference, I think it's it's really worth looking at all of those kinds of decisions that we make too. I think remember that those are hard decisions. I mean, you might, I could see even myself almost like a part of me wanting to make the like anti-bias decision about any number of those things. And then another part of me being like, oh, you know, come on, who are you kidding? Let's just stick with what you know. And I guess I, I don't want to condone that, but I also want to appreciate that that's like, I think our brains are not wired to change. <laughs> so this is hard. It's really hard to to even slow down enough to kind of catch all those things, let alone actually implement strategies. Yes. 
Hence, this is a practice, a long-term practice and not an instant, (laughs) not an instant switch that gets flipped. Totally. Well, that question, how bias and discrimination affect trust and the downstream effects, maybe that's relevant to what I'm even saying. Like, what is that? What do you mean by that? How bias and discrimination affect trust and the downstream effects? You know, this is something I've really been thinking about a lot lately. We often think about like the impact of bias or the impact of discrimination being, you know, the the sort of immediate concrete harm that is caused to a person who is passed over for a promotion or is unjustly disciplined at school, something like this. But what I've been thinking about a lot lately is the way that that experience of discrimination then begins to erode trust. So if a patient, say, is in a doctor's office and they perceive and experience discrimination from that doctor, whether it's because of the person's weight or some other social identity, then that patient begins to feel less trusting of that doctor. And that starts to interfere with the entire doctor-patient relationship and that that patient's ability to get the healthcare and the, you know, the kinds of interactions that they need in order to have a healthy life and healthy outcomes. Um, in education, you know, if a student experiences a discrimination from a teacher, the student then trusts that teacher less. And that undermines their ability to have a mutually, you know, meaningful, respectful relationship, which is kind of the bedrock that we, you know, need as a society. We need these meaningful, trusting relationships in order to accomplish anything as a society. So I think there's a really close connection. And I mean, it's not just me. There's a lot of research about this too, but there's a very close connection between discrimination and lack of discrimination and trust that I think is really important for us to think about. We've definitely talked here about the the problem in the medical field. And I know from just speaking with patients who have, uh, I mean, lost all trust in the medical system, never mind just yes. one provider, and that really unfortunate sort of cycle that can start. And then, you know, you're, you're just not even getting care for yourself as a result of those... Um, those initial negative experiences. I'm trying to imagine now like sharing that or referencing this to teachers who might be listening, right? And might be sitting with tough thoughts about moments that maybe they've, or they're maybe questioning, did I act, was that action in reaction to my bias or informed by my bias? And maybe that person is like contemplating change, right? Or sitting here like wanting to, but I guess, what do you have to say to someone who's hearing this conversation at this moment and thinking, oh, I think I've caused harm. Well, the first thing is like self-compassion, like take a moment and realize that we're all, you know, humans on this journey that are doing the best, you know, often doing the best we can. And it's okay to be on a journey of growth and change as we all are. One thing I would offer if if someone is in that position and they're listening and thinking, oh my gosh, I've I've created, you know, I've undermined trust, is that there there are ways to repair it, you know, and there are concrete ways. Specifically, I'm thinking about a really amazing intervention that was really an intervention designed to 
promote trust and mutual respect between teachers and students. So I'll tell you the story about this one particular teacher who developed um, an approach to to building trust uh, where maybe it had been broken before. And this was a psychologist named Jason Okanofua, who was really concerned about disparate rates of suspension for Black and Latino students. And he himself had been a really gifted high school student, and he was in honors classes when he was in high school, a principal caught him with an inappropriate flyer that another student had given him and threatened to suspend him. And when he said he would stay in her office until they came up with a solution, he was told he would be arrested for disturbing the peace. Wow. He ended up spending a few hours in juvenile detention, um, but the experience really stayed with him. And when he became a psychology researcher and professor himself, he was really concerned about bias as kind of a feedback loop, like we were talking about, where um, teachers might be more likely to label a Black student's actions as misbehavior, and then the student might already fear that the teacher will treat that student unfairly and then feel unjustly targeted and act out, which then confirms a teacher's bias and creates this really negative cycle. So what he did was he recruited teachers at five diverse middle schools to participate in a training. And they were told that the training was going to be about reviewing common but neglected wisdom about teaching. But what he was actually interested in doing was seeing if he could, if encouraging empathy and trust would change teachers' behavior. So he did this whole intervention where he had teachers read a bunch of material and learn a bunch of strategies, like avoiding labeling students. That that was a big one. Avoiding labeling students as a troublemaker. Things like considering situational reasons for a student's behavior rather than, you know, assuming it's some kind of character trait in that student. And they were, um, he, the teachers also read students' descriptions of what made them feel respected by teachers. Then the teachers wrote reflections about how they would use all of these techniques. So what he did was he he tracked discipline rates over the following year after this after the teachers have go- had gone through this training, and he found that suspension rates dropped, and suspension rates of Black and Latino students in particular were cut in half. Wow! So I think it's a really powerful demonstration of the ability that fostering trust and and empathy can have in reducing bias. I mean, the interesting thing about this this particular study was that he wasn't actually targeting bias itself. He was really targeting... Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, I I was going to ask, I mean, you just answered it. Were any of the interventions that he was using intentionally challenging bias or educating about bias? But it sounds like no, that it was more an experiment to see if not talking about bias. It wasn't about educating teachers on their unconscious bias. It wasn't an implicit bias training. Correct. It was almost like an an empathy enrichment (laughs) class that that actually had a, a pretty significant impact on decreasing bias from these teachers. Exactly. And the, and the strategies like avoiding labeling a student and instead, you know, considering the situational reasons for their behavior. You know, I think those strategies are are useful across any range of, you know, social identities for students. It doesn't have to be just focused on one. Yeah, I like that. So 
because I, I want us to, I mean, I'm mindful of time and we're going to have to get to how do we make it last, but are there any other approaches to reducing bias that might help folks change minds, right? Uh, that you want to make sure we have in our, in our back pocket? This is more of um, a culture change approach, but if we think about the influence of the media and the way that the images that we're saturated with influence how we respond to one another, I think there's a, a really huge opportunity in media. And I, I have a little bit of a different perspective, I think, than, than maybe some others. What I found in, in the research that I did is that one of the most impactful ways that we can improve media representation of different groups is by increasing the amount of diversity we see within any particular group. Instead of trying to focus on um, making a particular stigmatized group all represented in a really positive way, what I found in the research is more effective in reducing bias is to actually represent the members of that stigmatized group as very different from one another. Because the more we see a group as diverse within within it within that group and various and complex and fully human, the the less easy it is to stereotype any particular group. That's fascinating. I mean, it it makes a lot of sense too because it's sort of increasing mental flexibility. Sometimes I think about oh, like even in the logo, I, we I read did the logo for the podcast. And I really wanted the girl in the bigger body to be the one jumping. Like that was important to me to sort of challenge that. And I, you know, I guess it's like what you're saying, you know, like a African-American in like prominent roles. I think that's what you were saying, right? Like in the office place. And I think we talk about that with like fat art. It's important to increase the body diversity that we sometimes we just don't even see fat bodies. But I think what you're saying is there's a nuance there. It's not just to, you know, put it where it wasn't, but to do better and show a variety of different types of ways to be a human. If they just so happen to have in common their body size or their color of skin or their age or something like this. Exactly. Because then that salient identity whether it, you know being a fat person, for instance, is not the defining thing about that person because there are so many other personality types and characteristics and traits and goals and you know you name yeah. it. That's really, really important. I'm gonna I'm gonna be passing that one on. Okay. So we're gonna go to okay, we've made the change. How do we make it last? And one of the ways I've tried to think about this myself as we um especially as I talk to, you know, our younger people, they are the culture makers, right? Like look at social media. It's just a bunch of TikToks and Instagrams at this point. Like, so I do think that young people have an incredible, well, I do have an incredible amount of power in terms of creating the culture that we want to live in and what we want it to look like. And so I do like to engage young people in those projects to like create content that essentially can help change minds and make it last. But I wonder if you could give us a little bit more concrete guidance um, from your research around what does actually allow change to last. Maybe what can we do personally? What do our big macro, what do we need to do? Um, 
How do we make it last? So creating meaningful relationships across difference is huge. I mean, this is something that I saw over and over again in case studies, in research, that developing personal relationships starts to break down the simplified categories that we have for one another and multiply those categories. So instead of seeing a particular group as just being X or Y, suddenly they're A through Z, you know? So I I really can't overstate how important relationships across difference is. Another huge and I think kind of under-discussed piece of this puzzle is um, learning history. One thing that is incredibly important in combating present-day discrimination is learning the history of discrimination. There's research that shows that the more we can, the more we understand discrimination from the past, the more we see it in the present and recognize it in the present. But similarly, I mean, I think another piece of this sort of history component is understanding that the prejudices and patterns that we see in the present day were not always here. They're human inventions. They're culturally specific. They're culturally contingent. I'm sure that is something that you you talk about with weight. I mean, there are times in the past when different body sh- body types and body shapes were elevated or you know seen as desirable or less desirable and so understanding that the harmful patterns that we've inherited were not always there can also be a very helpful and illuminating thing for people to sort of keep in mind as they're working on this. And then there are all sorts of like structural interventions as well. <laughs> Those are really daunting. I, I, I prefer the, I guess as a therapist, right, I'm pretty micro. And I do think though that, you know, you get enough little little people that are trying to make waves in their own little communities, whether it's in their family or in their consultation room or in their school and their grade. I would like to think that there could be a trickle up, but obviously we need, we need structural change too. Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing that I think it's important to emphasize is that combating bias, trying to overcome bias, tackling it, benefits all of us. This isn't like a zero-sum game or, you know, something like if I'm sort of trying to eliminate my bias against another group of people, that somehow that takes away from me. I think that when we when we tackle our biases, we all benefit. We benefit from not only less injustice in the world and more greater contributions from a broader number of people in all facets of life and science and art and politics, But I think we all benefit from deeper, richer relationships with one another. Yeah, it creates just better energy in the the environment. I I wonder if there's anything that we didn't hit on, especially now that you kind of got a vibe for this project and like this conversation, if there's anything that we didn't cover that you want to mention before we stop. I think one thing that was has been really important for me in doing this work and being on this journey is realizing that making mistakes is part of the process and that the worst thing that we can do is to disengage once we've made a mistake because we feel ashamed or we feel embarrassed. If we can start to kind of normalize the fact that we we all have a lot of work to do and making mistakes is 
just one thing that's going to happen along the journey, then I think, I hope that we can have more compassion for ourselves and for each other as we, you know, try and stumble and, and try again. But sticking with the process, I think, is really essential. I think it's meaningful. And I think, you know, when I think about uh, my team and I are about to go do a workshop for young people, uh, 10th graders, um, and that's an important message for them to spread, you know, that this isn't, cause I think there can be this like, oh, like this person's woke and this person's not. And it's like, fuck you. You know, it's like, we have to create more bridges, right. And spaces to be able to be like, Hey, it's cool. You're not going to get this right all the time, but you shouldn't stop trying. And I think that it's, that is a good message that messing up is part of the process. And that's where it's like we started, we're ending where we started with self-compassion and uh, making it okay to mess up on the way to making the environment emotionally healthier for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body-positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.